Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Burkina Faso in West Africa on a missions trip. And uh, it was our intention to go there to bless the missionaries uh, and to also just kind of encourage the local church. We were working with some folks that were going out into the bush and working with national pastors in this growing church movement. So we went and we built a bunch of benches for churches so that we could go into these villages and bless these pastors and they wouldn't have to sit on the floor. They could actually sit on benches. So we spent a full day building benches and then we loaded up and we just drove out into the bush. We were going to visit 10 different villages. And when you show up in a village, there's just certain things that you do. There's certain customs that happen all of the time. When you show up, we pulled up to the church, you would greet the pastor, and then you had to sit and share the news. You had to share all of the news of things that were happening outside the village. Now, uh, we didn't have any news, thankfully. The missionary we were with had news. And then after you share the news, the pastor gets to share the news of what's going on in the village. And then when that's done, you have to ask for the road. You can't just get up and leave. You have to ask for the road. And then they have to give you the road. Now, if conversation is good, they won't give you the road. If conversation is lacking, they'll be quick to give you the road. But you have to ask for the road when this happens. That's the only way that you can leave. So we were going around village to village and kind of going through all of these customary things that you do when you visit like that. And, and we get to one village and it is just dark outside. When the sun goes down, it's like somebody flips a switch. It, total darkness, there's some fires going, and we show up, and we uh, greet the pastor, and we share the news, and he shares the news, and then we ask for the road. And he says, well, you can't have the road because the village chief and the village elders want to meet you because they're so pleased that such important people would come visit them. And I was like, that's right. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine? Really, you're right. I'm a youth pastor, some high school kids from Salem, Oregon, right? We don't have any authority. We don't have any money. We got nothing. Right? But they're all like, oh, we're so excited that important people are coming. So what we're going to do is we go to the village chief's house, his hut, and he's got the elders of the village lined up on this bench, and he's kind of at the end. And the missionary kind of pushes me in first. And so I'm first in line, and so I go up to this first gentleman, and it's dark in the room. There's some candles going, and I put my hand out like this in front of him to greet him. Nothing. He he doesn't budge. And, And it's Awkward, and I'm not sure if I did it wrong. I don't know if you high five. I'm not sure if you're like, woo, hey. (laughs) I don't know what you do. So I put my hand there, and it's just nothing. And so honestly, I start kind of waving it around a little bit, like maybe, maybe he doesn't see my hand right here. Hey, right? And it's just becoming totally awkward. I've got a line of people waiting to greet. I've got the, the chief down here, and nothing's happening. And finally, after this horrible, awkward silence, the missionary leans over my shoulder and he goes, hey, Brian, that guy's blind. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I just wrecked relations. Wrecked your mission. <laughs> oh, crazy. They were quick to give us the road after that. <laughs> Surprising, huh? There are interesting things. When you get to travel different places, you get to see the customs that they live by. And and some of the things that they do overseas are so much better than we do here. And some of the things that they do overseas, you might find a bit odd. But most of the customs are just different. Like if you were to visit the Maasai tribe in Eastern Africa, they greet each other a little different than we do. They greet each other by spitting on each other. That's the greeting. How great is that? Right? We're going to institute that for fellowship time, right? Because it would change where you sit. 
Be like, he's got a cold, and I want to spit on him. <laughs> they also do it with babies. When babies are born, the men come, and they pick up the baby, and they spit on it and tell it it's bad. Because they believe it, if they say it's good or cute, then it'll grow up with this kind of attitude problem. So can you imagine going to the hospital? Oh, she's so precious. <laughs> You're bad. Oh, here you go. Here's another one. Every year in Solapur, India, parents get together to throw their newborn babies off of a 50-foot tower. Now, they don't throw them to their death because the villagers are down below holding on to sheets to catch the babies. And the babies live. And the parents do this because they believe this practice will give their children long and healthy lives. <laughs> like, if you can survive this, the rest of your life's easy. You know, in Spain, they run with the bulls, right? I mean, look at this picture. Don't look at this picture. All right. There it is. <laughs> Enough said, right? It's kind of a crazy custom. I was reading this past week about wedding customs and how strange it is. And, and in traditional Irish marriages, the bride and groom would walk to the chapel together, hand in hand, as a sign of harmony. And people would throw rice and pots and pans at them. Imagine showing up at the wedding with a shiner. That kid had good aim, but we got a good frying pan from it. It's kind of an odd thing. Now, before you start thinking, yeah, boy, those people overseas, they're crazy. We've got some crazy customs of our own, right? Halloween. All our lives we tell our children, don't take candy from strangers. Unless it's October and you're dressed up in costume and you're going door to door. At that point, take all the candy you can get. It's kind of odd, right? I don't know. We just celebrated, maybe celebrated is too strong of a term, Groundhog Day, where we let a little rodent tell us what the weather's going to be, right? We, we've got our own strange customs. There's, there's a way that we are used to living, and then there's a way that we would never adopt because it's strange or it's foreign to us. There's certain things that we're used to. Now, when we read scripture, we see Jesus kind of bumping into culture and customs of people around him. And Jesus isn't like, guys, really, Groundhog Day? He's like bumping into like the important ways that we live, the important priorities, you see, because his culture or his kingdom has different rules than our culture does, than our kingdom does. And so as you read through scripture, you start finding Jesus kind of challenging the customs of the day, challenging the culture of the day. He's saying, there's different rules in my kingdom. If you're going to follow me, you have to live by the rules of my kingdom. This morning, we're going to look at three stories from the book of Mark. And the common thread in each of these three stories is the disciples living by the rules of their own kingdom. And Jesus kind of bumping into those and saying, no, you have to live a different way. You have to live differently. It's going to be different in my kingdom. And the disciples just don't get it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 9. If you want to grab one out of the pew there, it's on page 1590. And uh, Mark chapter 9, it begins with the transfiguration. Now, that was the message that was going to happen last week. And uh, then the snowpocalypse happened and we couldn't have that message. And so many have asked, what are you going to say about the transfiguration this morning? Well, the answer to that is nothing. 
Steve's going to come back to that, and he's going to preach that message again. Next time he's here, we're going we're to kind of catch up on the story. But we're going to jump in after the transfiguration. And I want to let you know that there's kind of a mood change at this point in the book of Mark. Jesus is coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and things are going to get tougher. Things are going to get tougher for Jesus, and things are going to get tougher for his disciples. And that's why he's so concerned about the way that they're living. You see, if you remember from our overview, the book of Mark is 16 chapters, and it's basically divided in half. One to eight, and then the hinge is when Peter declares Jesus the Messiah. And then 9 to 16 is the second half. So if the first half is all about the identity of Jesus as king over all things. And the second half is all about his purpose of dying on the cross. If the first half of the book of Mark has a word that describes it, it's life. Jesus is healing. He's delivering. He's, he's eating with all kind of people and gathering people around together. It's his public ministry. And if the second half of the book of Mark has a word that describes it, that word is probably death. You see, the mood changes. There's, there's a sense of urgency. Jesus has direction. His compass is set on Jerusalem. He's leading the pack. It's the end of his public ministry. Things are going to be a little bit different as we move forward. And so the stories that we're going to read today are, are kind of that sense of urgency as Jesus is coming. And he comes off the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's got Peter and James and John that were with him there. And he comes down, and he, and he bumps into his disciples, and his disciples are arguing with the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus kind of comes upon this scene. And so verse 16, he says, what's all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Which is interesting. His disciples couldn't do it. You see, they had been given this power. In chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus calls his disciples together. He sends them out two by two. And, and he says, I give you authority to cast out evil spirits. So what was different about this time? What, what was the holdup? Why couldn't they do it? Jesus says to them, he turns to his disciples and he says, you faithless people. How long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? And then he says, bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, and when the boy sees Jesus, the evil spirit inside him, throws him on the ground, and Jesus says, how long has this been happening? And here's the, the father's reply. He says, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. The father comes to Jesus, and you just know that, that it's a desperation moment. You know that he's lived a life of disappointment of sadness because of what's going on with his son and he's constantly rescuing his son whether it be near water or with fire and every time he rescues his son it's not a complete rescue because they always end up at the same point and this father comes to Jesus saying I need help outside of myself I, I need help and, and he came and he asked of the disciples and the disciples couldn't do it and that's why he says to Jesus have mercy on us and help us if you can you know, maybe he thinks, well, your disciples couldn't do it. You're not going to be able to do it. It's just beyond help. Nothing is going to help this situation. And I love Jesus' response. He says, what do you mean, if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. He answers with this kind of, yeah, I have faith, but I still have some questions. 
And I just think it's an absolute honest response. I love that. That that you can have your faith and it can coexist with some of your questions. You see, when we come to Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness. We don't need to come to Jesus perfectly ready, perfectly righteous, just repentantly helpless. You see, Jesus could have looked at him and he could have said, purify yourself, you need to get rid of this sin. What's this, I do believe, but I don't believe? How come there's doubt in your world there? What's that all about? Stop being so double-minded. When you have it together, come back to me. He doesn't say that at all. I mean, his response is to his disciples, not to this father. Jesus sees that the crowd of onlookers is growing, and so he rebukes the evil spirit, and he heals the boy. He does what his disciples could not do. And then we get to this point here. We get to afterward, verse 28. Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, and they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. And that's interesting, right? Because I kind of assumed that prayer was part of the equation all along. I kind of assumed that that's the way it worked. But all of a sudden, his disciples, their words didn't have the same power that they used to. And and you get this impression that the disciples were just like, listen, we got this. We can do this. I mean, the disciples were the first professional Christ followers. That's what they did. And so they were beginning to have this feeling of, okay, I can do this. I'm on it. I got this thing. But somewhere... Along the line, the prayer had stopped. And maybe that's our story as well. How often do we get caught going through the motions? How often do we get caught thinking, well, listen, I know. I know the routine. I know the drill. I've grown up in church. I know the things to say. I know the things that I'm supposed to do. And then somewhere along the line for us, the prayer stops. We stop praying, and I don't know, it's, it's either we get too busy or, or prayer's too mysterious or we have a bunch of excuses, but somewhere the prayer stopped. And Jesus is saying this, you need to be absolutely reliant upon me. You see, prayer is a declaration of your dependence upon God. Prayer is a declaration of your dependence upon him. It's this surrender to him. It helps you to see things from his perspective. And I know we know it's important to pray. And I know it sounds like, you know, oh, yes, I know. It's it's really important. I should be praying more. But we wrestle with it. We wrestle with it because it is mysterious. We wrestle with it because we don't know what to say. We wrestle with it maybe because we never hear anything. Maybe it doesn't work for us. We don't feel like it makes any difference, but Jesus is saying you have to be dependent upon me. You have to be in prayer. I mean, think about it. If you were to describe your prayer life in a word, what would it be? Would it be non-existent? Maybe it's consistent. Maybe it's focused. Maybe it's lacking. Maybe it's life-giving. Maybe you're struggling with this. I mean, someone asked Billy Graham, Listen, you've done so much over your lifetime. But looking back in your life, is there anything that you would do differently? Here's what he said. I would spend more time in prayer. Even Billy Graham would pray more. This is something that we need to be working on. Corey Ten Boom says this. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Does prayer drive the things that you're doing or do you just pull it out 
in an emergency? Does it set the course and direction of your life, or is it just a desperation thing for you? Jesus is saying, you have to be dependent upon me. You have to be leaning in on me. You can't do this on your own. And so he's calling us to prayer. And I know that this is a struggle for a lot of us. I struggle with it. There's certain things that, that help. I, I have to be by myself when I pray. If I'm with other people, I'm constantly thinking about the things that I'm speaking in, out loud and I'm worried about what they're going to think and did I say that right. So I, for me to pray best, I need to be by myself and I need to speak out loud. I, to pray in my head, I am just, it's like short attention span theater, right? I'm like praying and then I'm like, what's the score of the game? And then I'm like, I need to get that done. And then I'm like, oh, that's right, I'm praying. So speaking out loud for me helps me focus a little bit. And this idea that, you know what, if you don't have anything to say, Part of prayer is listening. You don't have to just always talk. And there's also this piece of just humility in your prayer. You know, God wants us to pour out everything that's in us, not everything that should be in us. He knows. And so we just need to pour out what is in us. But oftentimes, when we think of prayer, the first thing we think about is guilt. This idea of I should be doing more. All right? I want you to hold your hands out like this. You don't have to raise them or nothing. We're, we, I won't take you that far. Hold them out like this. Pretend that in your hands is this guilty feeling, right, that we carry around about prayer. Now turn your hands over. See, the guilt's gone. See how easy? <laughs> right, now listen, I understand that the guilt is not gone, but, but we need to understand that we have to let go of that guilt. Be done with that guilt and just start somewhere. Start anywhere. Make the most of your car ride. You, maybe you commute to work. Don't have the radio on and take the, take the earpiece out. Turn the phone off. And just for that amount of time, start praying in, in small chunks because that is that dependent, dependence upon Jesus. He longs to have that conversation with you. Milton writes in his book, Paradise Lost, that Adam and Eve were just wandering the earth despondent because they knew that the sin that they had just committed had literally just knocked the earth off of its axis. And Adam is saying, how can I ever pray to God again? And then he says this in this book. He says, I kneeled before him and I humbled all my heart. And I saw him not angry or hostile, but bending his ear to me. And just this picture that God is just longing, that he is listening, and that he wants us to call out on him. You see, Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, if you rely on yourself, you will get no further than yourself. You have to call on me. You have to be dependent on me. You can't do this just by going through the motions. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to always just trust in the things I can do myself. I'll never get beyond myself. And so Jesus is saying it's not self-reliance, it's prayer, it's dependence upon me. The second story is this, Jesus predicts his death and the disciples don't exactly get it again, but they're afraid to say anything to Jesus because they don't want to get rebuked again. Uh, verse 33, it says, after they arrived in Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. In the presence of Jesus, arguing about who's the greatest. It seems a little strange, doesn't it? 
But we just know that that's just, it's just who we are. It's kind of our society. It's a default setting for us. It's like somewhere in middle school, someone said, I want you to line up in order of importance. And we've been trying to do it ever since. Because that's the society we live in. We, we reward performance. You don't get your paycheck at work and go, oh, thank you so much. I get paid for this? This is too much. <laughs> Seriously, no, you perform for that. You work for that. At school, you perform to get your grades. That's why athletes get paid big dollars to dunk and to hit home runs and to, to score goals. Because we reward performance. Fortune 500, they print the 500 wealthiest people in the world, not the 500 biggest losers of the world. We're performance-based. And that performance-based society comes out in our faith as well. And so we worry about where we rank. So the question really is, who's the greatest in this service? Which one of us is the greatest? I've created a quiz to help us find out. For every one of these that you can answer positively to, you get 10 points or 10 Bible bucks, whatever makes you feel best. Whoever has the most Bible bucks at the end is the greatest. You direct deposit your tithe. Which is tough, right? Because every time you pass that, you want to tell people why you're not giving. No, I direct deposit. I direct deposit my tithe. <laughs> Bonus points if you have a t-shirt that says, I direct deposit my tithe. <laughs> you're in a read through the Bible in a year program. And bonus points if you're actually on schedule. You forward those emails that say, if you don't love Jesus, you won't forward this email. You follow Jesus on Twitter and pin God on Pinterest. You take a selfie of yourself, put a scripture under it, send it to your friends. You don't have to use the table of contents when the pastor asks you to turn to an Old Testament minor prophet. You always add an amen or a mmm to someone else's prayer. Mmm, 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 mmm. You had surgery on a Friday, you were in church that Sunday. You have a cross or fish tattoo on your ankle. <laughs> Bonus points if you have Hebrew on your forearm. You have a bracelet that says WWJD, frog, fully relying on God, or yolt, you only live twice. You lead people to Jesus on airplanes. You know what an Ebenezer is and what hymn it came from. You continue to stand even when the worship leader tells you it's okay to sit down. You use GodTube, not YouTube. You would never say Merry Xmas. And last weekend, when it was snowing, you still showed up at Steve Fowler's house to hear the message. <laughs> All right, so add up your points. If you were over, no, right? Listen, a lot of those things are, are good things, right? A lot of those things you were like, wait, I, I do that. They're good things, but they're not good things when we use them to rank ourselves. And you may or may not do these things as a way of ranking yourself, but honestly, so often we rank ourselves by them. We keep score by them. And here's what we end up saying. We end up saying either I need to be more like them or they need to be more like me. But the problem with that is it ends still with me. You see, the system stinks. Because the system will lead you to one of two places that you don't want to be. If you are constantly living your life saying, I need to be more like them, then you know what you're carrying around all the time? 
guilt. And if you spend your life saying, boy, they need to be more like me, then all the time you're feeling prideful. And that's where this system leads you. And maybe you feel like your whole life you've been bouncing back and forth between guilt and pride and guilt and pride. That's the system. That's where the ranking system leaves you. That's why Jesus was saying, you don't get it. It's not about that. But the disciples were so concerned about who was number one. I mean, can't you see Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when it ended, Jesus said, listen, don't tell anybody what happened up there. You can't say. And as they come back down, I can just see the other disciples running up. Hey, hey, what happened? What happened? Was it cool? And they were like, it was awesome. But we can't tell you. It's just for us to know. Right? They're sitting around eating and Peter's like, hey, remember when Jesus on the mountain? Oops, can't say. It was so great. I'm so glad I was there. You see, they didn't understand the customs in the kingdom of God. They didn't understand the kingdom rules. You see, the danger of this is that our obedience and our humility and our servanthood gets lost in our push for status. And our loving one another turns into judging one another, turns into you're, you're not like me. And we know that this stems from this deep-seated insecurity and this question, am I good enough? You know what the answer to that question is? No. None of us are. None of us are good enough, but when we have Jesus, he answers that question because it's his righteousness that we have. And when we have Jesus, we are in him good enough. And so that question is settled. But so often we seek places of advantage rather than places of service. And so maybe this morning we need to ask ourselves this question. How can I lower my position? What things are beneath me? Now listen, there are no trivial acts of service. There are just acts of service. And maybe you need to start thinking about these things because Jesus, when he said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Don't worry about the ranking system. It's not about rankings. It's about serving. It's about being a servant. So start thinking about those things that you feel like are beneath you and then start thinking about, all right, how do I take those things on? What's one of those things that I can start doing so that I need to recognize this ranking system because it doesn't lead me anywhere but guilt or pride? You see, Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, it's not about status, it's about service. In my kingdom, it's not about who's one, two, three, top five, top ten. It's about serving. Where are you serving? What are you doing to meet the needs of other people? His disciples didn't get it. Verse 38 is this, this last story here. John says to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Jesus says in response, anyone who is not against us is for us. See, the disciples thought that they were a closed group. They thought that they had this special position. Nobody should be doing their jobs. And it's funny, especially a job that they couldn't do earlier on in this chapter. Jesus, they, they can't be doing that. You see, they're more concerned about their own position than they were about the needs of other people. 
And as we read through Mark 9 and as we kind of catch on to these stories, more and more we see that the disciples are becoming the Pharisees. They're becoming the Pharisees. They're like, listen, I got this thing. I can do this myself. I've been doing it long enough. I'm going through the motions. They're concerned with their position. And then here we have this, this self-righteousness. Because here's what they're saying. They aren't us. They aren't us. They don't worship like we do. They don't believe the same things that we believe. Their customs aren't the same as our customs. They aren't us. And they began to get this elitist attitude. And so then Jesus links their elitist attitude to this. And you might wonder why this follows that story. But verse 43, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your feet take you places that you should not go, it's better to not have feet. If your hands start allowing you to do things that are causing you to sin and driving you away from Jesus, it's better to not have hands. If your eyes are allowing you to see things that cause you to trip up and stumble, it's better to not have eyes. You see, Jesus is saying this, don't be like, oh, look, them, Jesus, deal with them. Jesus, tell them to stop. Deal with your own stuff. You see, we need to deal decisively with our own sin. We need to be ruthless in its removal. I work with students, and one of the things I hear all the time is, oh, man, my iPod is killing me. My laptop, it's killing me because of all the things that I can see on there. And my response to them is this, get rid of it. No, I can't get rid of it. All my music's on there. I do my homework on that. How can I play Flappy Bird? If I did not have my iPod, right? That, this is important to me. Yeah, it's important to you, but it's killing you. And you have to deal decisively with that. You have to remove those things that are keeping you from following Jesus. Maybe it's all the movie channels that you have. And every time you get on, there's good stuff to watch and there's bad stuff to watch. And you're struggling with that. But we need to deal decisively. You see, Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, you got to look to yourself. Don't, don't be judging other people. Look to your own stuff. Don't be talking about the speck in someone else's eye. There's a log in your own eye. And you need to deal with that. Laura and the team are going to come out and they're going to lead us in a time of prayer and they're going to lead us in a time of worship. And as they do, I just want to kind of show you this uh, this slide here, these columns. See, the world's culture talks about self-reliance. It talks about your position. How can you go up in the rankings? It talks about, man, you need to make yourself look good. See, but when Jesus comes, he says, my kingdom, it has a different set of rules. It has a different set of values. I need you to be dependent upon me in prayer. I need you to humbly serve. And you need to deal with your own stuff. And so where do you find yourself on this column? What things are you wrestling with? 